people you love, play five songs they love and tell you why. What do Red Hot Chili Peppers, Ice Cube, Status Quo and Neil Diamond all have in common? Tana Douglas. She's recognised as the world's first female roadie and she got her start as a teenager working with a young band who were about to release their debut album. The band was ACDC. And that story is just one of hundreds that have filled her extraordinary life. Tana would go on to tech for The Who at Wembley Stadium, Iggy Pop in Amsterdam, even Elton John playing a birthday party at Windsor Castle. She's just published her story, a memoir called Loud, which captures not just the wild tales from the road, but also the spirit of the crew who make magic happen every night on stage. It's a brilliant read, and I was so excited to meet Tana when she joined me to Take Five. Her theme was Songs from the Road, and before we dived into her incredible stories, I asked Tana when she knew she wanted to make a life working in sound. I wanted music in my life, so I didn't realise that I could make a career because I had no intention of being, like, on stage myself, like, singing or anything like that. I mean, I learnt very early in school <laughs> that that was not for me. I did the Mikado once and that was enough for me. <laughs> it was like, no, no, this is not good. So that sort of quieted me down for a minute. But as soon as I got out in the world out of boarding school and discovered, like, I, I mean, when I first saw the effect that music had on people as a crowd you know I mean it was in my hippie days and we'd all sit around the campfire and we'd have three or four guitars going and a couple of drums and people would just come out of the rainforest and all of a sudden there'd be like 50 people standing around and <laughs> and you'd look at them and they're all just awestruck and it was like you know this this it's really powerful it's a real you know? Pied so Piper I've, moment isn't it it is yeah and you, you figure that out I figured that out really early on you know and and then when I got the opportunity to actually become a part of it more, you know, from the technical side, then you know, that was just amazing to me. Your path to becoming a roadie was a little bit out of the ordinary, at least in my mind. I mean, you were involved with a stunt over Sydney Harbour by a, a tightrope worker called Philippe Petit. And it, some people may not know that name off the top of their head, but many people would have seen this incredible doco on him a few years ago called Man on Wire. This was a guy that basically did these stunts, huge sort of tightrope walks across major structures. And you were there to help him out with this quite illegal stunt walking between the two pylons at Sydney Harbour Bridge, right? That's right, yes. And that, that came about from the Nimbin Festival because he'd actually been... Um, sponsored to come over to Australia as a cultural exchange. So, so the the actual the the government actually paid for him to come and and inadvertently paid for him to walk across the Sydney Harbour Bridge illegally. So, so it was quite exciting, really. I mean, I was in Nimbin, obviously there for the music, but we came across him, and he was you know tightrope walking between buildings and stuff. And and when I'd met the people involved, and they said they were going down to Sydney to do this sneak surprise event and they were going to film it and everything it was like oh wow that's really cool can I come you know? so so I tagged along you know my my 16 year old I just turned 16 at Nimbin so I, I tagged along with them and became part of what became my first real production I guess you know even though I had a very small part in it but I, I figured out for the first time that all of this could be done I mean they had they had blueprints of the bridge. They were checking for like structure support and you know stress 
values for like rigging steel cables and things like that so it was safe for him to walk and you know finding the large pipes that he could use for his balance bar and and it was quite the production and no one had a clue we were doing it it was we were doing it right under the noses of everybody and no one knew until the actual event where he actually stepped out and started walking across. The mad Frenchman, Philippe Petit, eclipsed a similar stunt that he carried out in June last year in Sydney when he crossed between the towers of the Harbour Bridge. Terry Hughes sends this report. Philippe had to plan the operation with the utmost secrecy. After all, 110 stories up what? on a wire is regarded as reckless endangerment by some, especially the police. Later in the day, he told the press about his highly secret operation that he said he planned like a bank robbery. That was my first taste, even though it wasn't music. So when I all of a sudden discovered, when I went to my first show in the King's Cross at the Whiskey and discovered that there were all these people apart from the people on the stage, like singing and playing instruments, it's like, hang on, what are all these people doing? And then when I was told, you know, oh, they're roadies, it's like, what? They get to travel with the band, so you listen to music, you travel, and you get paid. I'm in. <laughs> it sounded perfect to me. And what a beginning that was. We're going to explore some of the amazing experiences that you've had working in the thick of some of the world's biggest bands and biggest shows. We're going to begin with a cover song. Originally by Prince, you've chosen Foo Fighters' version of Darling Nikki as your first choice. Why this song? Every song that I'm choosing actually is from the book. So it's each chapter in the book is the title of a song. Mm. And Nikki was the time that I spent in the King's Cross. Nikki was, she was a young working girl who actually got murdered by her pimp. And so I thought this would be a nice tribute to her because that event happening to her and me getting in trouble with the same pimp, being threatened by him and actually kidnapped, inspired me to get out of the cross and in turn that's how I ended up in the music industry so it was quite a, a ground-shaking moment in my life so this is a tribute to Nikki. What had taken you to the cross in the first place? I, you know, I'd come out of the rainforest and, you know, after we'd done the, the Philippe Petit thing, I'd headed all the way back up to the North Point's um, Cedar Bay, a place north of Port Douglas in Queensland. And, you know, we had a hippie commune up there and, you know, I stayed for a season and then it was getting wet again. And I was so tired of being rained on. <laughs> Everything wet and miserable, really. I mean, it's, it's a hard life living in the jungle, you know. So when a couple of people said they were heading back down to Sydney, you know, did I want to come? It was like, yes, please, you know. So, you know, so I went back down to Sydney. They had a house in Paddington, which is just adjacent to the cross there. And they had me going in and out of the cross because everyone else was too scared because they were scared of all the locals. You know, it was a rough place in those days, a really rough place. And so I was the only one brave enough to go in there and we're doing things like selling out acid and pot and different things like that. A tough so, nut from the get-go. So I was doing illicit. Yeah, no. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs>
So this next song is Urge Overkill and it's Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. Girl, you'll be a woman soon. I love you so much, can't count all the ways I died for you, girl, and all they can say is he's not your kind. They never get tired of putting me down and I never know when I come around what I'm going to find. Where does Urge Overkill's Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon take you, Tana? Well, that's basically, it's a Neil Diamond song. And I actually toured with Neil Diamond before I left Australia. He was one of the international tours I did before I left working for Paul Dandy's crew, ACT. And he was just such a such a pleasure to work with. He was fun, you know, and, and I, I got to spend an interesting evening with Neil before the tour started, <laughs> which, um, which happened as... You know, it was the first time I'd been hired directly by an international band. I mean, I'd been working for the the production crew that did the tours, but I'd just done Carlos Santana tour. And their crew offered me up to go and do the Neil Diamond tour as part of the American crew, which was a big thing again for me. So it was like, oh, this is a great step, you know, this will get me sort of international stuff. Maybe I'll get to go overseas soon. And so I was going to the opening night party for the tour. The tour was just about to start, but they were getting everyone in to introduce all the Australians to all the American crew, etc. And I, I walked in, I'd just come off Carlos Santana, which was, you know, and I was thinking that I didn't know who Neil Diamond was. I was thinking that it would be a similar vibe, you know. And I, I walk into this party. Got a black magic woman. And it's a room full of satin. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, all the, all the bright colours and jeans and T-shirts and stuff of Santana, you know, with his huge band and entourage, you know. And I'm like, oh Lord. And just in my... You know, my 17-year-old mind it was like, oh, everyone looks so old. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> and, I mean, they were probably in their 30s, maybe. You know, so Ancient. Sort of so they had, I know, but in my mind, exactly. It was like, oh, Lord. So I sort of sheepishly said hello to a few people and then bolted for the door. And just as I was leaving, this chap comes up to me and he's like, hi, hi, where are you going? I said, oh, anywhere out of here, <laughs> I've got to go, you know, and he said, yeah, I think I want to go too, you know, and he's going, can I come? And I'm like, well, I, I don't know, you know, and so he follows me out, he grabs a bottle of champagne on the way, and I'm thinking, oh, I hope he doesn't get in trouble for stealing a bottle of champagne, <laughs> so we get to the front of the, outside the hotel, and it's like, and I'm looking, going like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to get a cab home, a taxi, you know, and he goes, you know, he says, can you show me show me the town? Is there any? I said there wasn't anything open at that time of night. I'm thinking, oh, he says I've got a car, and I thought, oh, free lift home. This is good. <laughs> so, so I said, oh, well, okay, sure, you know. And then just as he just as I say that, this limousine pulls up, and he's gone. He's gone. Oh, hi. I should introduce myself. I'm Neil Diamond. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. <laughs> Sweet Often that you had an artist that took you by surprise, that you either under or overestimated. 
Yeah, it does actually. It really does. It's 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 so hard to tell, you know, because until you work with them or you know someone who's worked with them, you know, you've got the same information as the rest of the world, you know, but you do learn really quickly once you step over that line and you're part of the tour, then you actually see what these people are really, really like, you know. And, you know, thankfully, mostly, you know, it's it's a pleasant surprise. You know, there there are those moments, but, you know, that's like life, you know. What are you going to do? <laughs> They're also, you know, this was a, a great testament to the fact that you were making a good name for yourself, a good rep as a fantastic roadie, because you're 17, you're being asked to crew on this, um, you know, international tour with Neil Diamond and the rest of them are Americans. But also through this book, there seems to be a great camaraderie and an understanding between different crews. Did you Would you see people on certain tours and go, oh, I just want to work with them. It doesn't even matter who the artist is. Did you work on certain bands or with certain bands because of the crews that they were working with? I, I did that on a regular basis, a regular basis, yes. I mean, it's so much more important to me to be working with a good crew because you're spending like 24 seven with them. You're in the same, you're in the same bus, you're on the same planes, you're in the same hotels, you know, depending on the tour, you know, you're not that close with the bands on some tours, you know, so, and you know, some tours, you, you never know if a tour is going to be a good tour or a bad tour, depending on the performer. You don't know what mood they're in, what's going on in their life, you know, if they're even going to be sociable, you know, some, some are ridiculous, you know, like I, I did a few shows with Michael Jackson and it was, it was bizarre because we'd have to, we were told just as he was about to walk on stage, we all had to line up so he could walk past us, but we weren't allowed to look at him. It's like, what? <laughs> it's like, well, okay, everyone line up so he knows everyone's there. Well, actually, I should be over there working, but okay, I'll stand here looking silly, but don't look at him, whatever you do. It's like, then why do, why are we lining up? You know what I mean? <laughs> Weird stuff like that, you know, that, and others just come in and say, hey, how you doing? Give you a hug and, you know, just keep walking. And, you know, they're very nonchalant, you know. So, yeah, but still with a crew, you get really, really close, you know, and, you've, and you form lifelong bonds, just just lifelong. I mean, I, I have people who, you know, I'm still friends with from these early days, these Neil Diamond tours back then you know, and since then, you know, so that's going back a long time and you don't always see each other constantly. So, you know, you can go years and years and as it gets later and later in life, you know, you can go decades without seeing people, but you walk in the room and it's just as though you left the day before, you know. Yeah. So, so it's an important thing. It struck me as well that with every few weeks that passed, you were starting a whole new job pretty much. What you were doing was ostensibly the same or variations on similar sort of jobs that you would do tour to tour but you had a new boss every few weeks, which is so different to the you know the the normal world beyond music. It just do you think that you were drawn to that that constant feeling of of movement and of change every few weeks in your own life? You know, I I, I grew up that way, didn't I? You know, I had an incredibly disruptive childhood, and it was kind of second nature to me. You know, it's like okay, we're leaving, pack up, leave, we're out of here. Okay, I mean, that's what my mother used to say. <laughs> pack up leave we got to go in the middle of the night you know so that's what you do on a tour you know you come in you set it up then you tear it all down pack up and leave in the middle of the night so it, it just seemed normal to me which is kind of a little bizarre I think but um yeah I, I took to it like a duck to water just on that I guess world of um 
things that happen behind the scene, which is, you know, frankly, something that we don't really hear the stories of as often as I would like, because I loved that about this book, really understanding the family that brings these shows together. And particularly what I loved was the pride and uh, celebration of how much innovation advanced live performance and how roadies, roadies were at the forefront of that. You know, you're always finding better and bigger and more efficient ways of doing things because it made everything sound and look better, but also it made your jobs easier. How much have you seen live shows shift since you began, you know, around sort of 75, 76? Oh, astronomically so, astronomically so. And and thankfully I was there for each of those changes, you know, right up through the millennium, you know. So, I mean, it was, it, it happened so fast. You get used to one set of technology and all of a sudden it's changing. You know, so you had to pay attention. You had to know what was coming. You had to know just like now, you know. I mean, the reason why now it's it's so obvious to everyone is because we have the technology to share it amongst everyone. Back then, there was no technology for sharing. It would just, something would turn up or we'd all sit around a table and go, okay, they want something really huge, dynamic. What can we do, you know? And so we'd figure out, you know, I mean, you had to make sure that, you know, how heavy it was so that the weight of the stage, the stage could actually support it because originally everything was lifted from the ground up and then we got to the point where it was coming from the ceiling down. So, I mean, all of these changes and, and dimmer racks, you know, the size of equipment and the technology behind the equipment and the things that we could do, we could do technical patches to let us control like 3,000 lights, you know, which had never been done before and it's just amazing for people you know it's mind-boggling you need three separate desks to control it so you've got three different people working together during a show doing multiple cues that all rely on each other so you know I'm really I'm really proud to have been able to be a part of that that evolution and to know where it came from and and where it's gotten it to because you know without that start it wouldn't be where it is today you know so you know, I, I say to people, a lot of the younger people coming up go, you know, they hate the term roadie, you know what I mean? They think it's like a bit of a negative term, you know, and sort of, which it did, <laughs> it did get a bit of a negative connotation to it. But I say to them, you know, I said, you know what, guys, you know, you best remember that those older people who were roadies are the ones who paved the way for you. So, you know, little respect there, kids. <laughs> What's the wildest show that you ever worked on, the most technologically advanced or just even ridiculous, like big blue sky dreaming show that you worked on? Well, the most over-the-top one, which should have gone into the Guinness Book of Records, <laughs> was for a French performer called Johnny Alladay. Noir, noir, il n'y a plus d'espoir. And Johnny is like France's answer to Elvis Presley. You know, they have all these megastars in Europe that no one else ever knows about, you know. And what we did is we did this venue called the uh, Le Zenith, which is in Paris, and we did a six-month residency there, six shows a week, and it was sold out. I mean, outrageous, just completely outrageous for a performer. And he had everything from a big hand that came out and opened up and he was standing in it and it, and it waved him over the audience above their heads, yes. you know. And, and it had like the, the guitar player on a trapeze wire and then someone else was on fire and then they'd have a team of dancing girls that come on. I mean, it was bizarre. 
<laughs> it was, and, and the French call it le spectacle. Well, it certainly is a spectacle. It was like, oh my God. And what we did for this, he wanted the biggest production that had ever been put together. So I got called over. I was living in Los Angeles. I just moved to Los Angeles, but they called me back to Europe to do the show. And there was over 3,000 individual lighting instruments on that show. You know, 3,000 just park hands, and then there was like another 80 very lights and, you know, assortments of 10K lights and 5K lights and, oh, all sorts of stuff. And and it was the biggest lighting rig that was ever put together at any given time. And, yeah, that was the biggest show ever, yeah. Sounds like a lot of fun and also sounds like uh, some elements that maybe should have been in the Super Bowl on Monday, which by, you know, comparison was quite boring to that show, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I, I managed to avoid the Super Bowl. So, yeah, but I, I've been reading I've been reading the reviews and they're a little they're a little rough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they needed you on the show, Tana. They needed you bringing the magic. There Ana- you go. <laughs> <laughs> Another band that you literally lit up was The Who and we're going to go next to one of their biggest hits. You've chosen... Who are you? Uh, before we get to it, can you tell me a little bit about your time with these legends? Yeah, absolutely. I'd been I'd been in England a few years, you know. So I'd I'd been working with a band called Status Quo. They had their own lighting rig and I was running the lighting rig for them. So we toured non-stop. They'd you know, gone from Blue, Blue For You tour to rocking all over the world. And we'd been going for like two years. And finally we had a little bit of a break. And the timing was just right that um, the Who were getting together to do a show. And it was, you know, just the first show that they did after Keith Moon had died. So their original drummer. So it was a huge deal. And basically what they were doing is they were seeing, you know, if they could, if they still had the pulling power, because they hadn't done shows for a couple of years. So they were seeing if they still had the pulling power and if they could do it. And they decided they were going to do the Wembley Stadium in London, which took, which, you know, you could get 80,000 people in that venue. And that's what they did. They got 80,000 people. So I got bought in for the rehearsals before that, which was good. So this was a huge moment in their histories, but it was also a huge moment in mine because finally here I am standing on the stage of Wembley Stadium and I'm looking out, it's like six in the morning and I'm looking out and there's all the fog on the ground and it's like there's all these trucks getting unloaded and it's loud and it's banging and it's and I'm just standing there going, you know, these guys have sold out 80,000 tickets. It's like they've got no worries, you know, and then I thought about it and I thought, you know, I'm working for these guys that sold out 80,000 tickets. So I've got no worries, you know, so it was an eye opening moment for me. It was nice. And then we did a few shows after that. Yeah, as well. So it was interesting. So the next song we have coming up is Never Tear Us Apart by In Excess. Don't ask me what you know is true. Don't have to tell you 
about why you chose In Excess and this beautiful song, Never Tear Us Apart. Never Tear Us Apart. Well, I was back in Australia at the time and I'd, um, I'd had my son and I was back there getting, unfortunately, in a custody battle with him, with my mother for him. So it wasn't a happy time in my life, but coincidentally at the same time, In Excess was in the studio in Sydney recording with the producer, Chris Thomas, who I'd been out on tour with, with Elton John. And coincidentally, um, In Excess had asked me, as I'd, I'd done a tour with them in the States earlier, and they said, you know, you're on tour with Elton, you know Chris Thomas? It's like, yeah. And they said, you know, we really want him to do this album. We really want him to do the album, which was Listen Like Thieves, you know. And so, you know, we, we got together with Chris and he went down to the show at the Palladium in Los Angeles and the band met up with him and, you know, there'd been a little confusion earlier with the, with the manager, Chris Murphy, and that hadn't worked out. But when, once the band and Chris actually met face to face, they were all really happy with each other and decided that this is what they wanted to do. So I was in Melbourne and um, In Excess was in Sydney with Chris recording the album that I sort of pulled together for them, got them all finally hooked up and got them in a position where they could actually do the recording. So, you know, I'd, I'd like to, you know, listen to an In Excess song and it's also relevant to my mother, never tear us apart, you know, <laughs> keep away. <laughs> I was seems to be time and time again through this whole book that you really do all you can to help the bands in your life. Do you think of many of them, particularly those that you've worked with closely, as, as kind of members of your family? Yeah, I mean, it was as close as I ever got to a family unit. So, you know, I was quite happy if they, you know, if they were good people and in excess were great people, you know, they really were, you know, great band, you know, good people, friendly, you know, no, you know, no false images there. And uh, so you do what you can to help, you know, you always, there's a special bond between crew and band, you know, and so you always, you know, try and go the extra mile if there's something you can do to make their life easier or something you can do to help with the situation they have going on. And they sort of rely on that a little bit and they trust you for that, you know, and they know that, you know, what they say and what they do doesn't necessarily go any further, you know. So it's always nice if there is a situation where you can help out and then years later, you know, I mean, I still have the platinum album on my wall from the Listen Like Thieves, you know, the, the fruit of the unison, so to speak, you know. So it's nice. I look at that and I smile, you know. So 
It's a good thing. You've worked incredibly hard throughout your life um, in getting where you went, in innovating in the way that you did, um, in leading so many bands to higher highs on their live shows uh, and beautifully lit, beautifully sounding, beginning all the way back um, when you lobbed on with ACDC before they released their first album. It's an extraordinary life. But, of course, running parallel to this, um, is this, you know, very obvious fact that you were the first female roadie, you're a trailblazer to this day in a male-dominated field. Where did you draw strength from throughout the decades that you were working in the scene and when challenges came your way? Because some of those stories make their way into the book. I can't imagine what it was like being in some of their crews today, much less in the 70s and, and 80s. Where did you draw your strength from? Well, I really didn't have anything else going for me. You know what I mean? I mean, I was a child runaway. I had no family to speak of. And, you know, what what other option did I have? You know, I could go and work in a store somewhere, I guess, you know, but that really just wasn't for me. I, I did, From a very young age, I'd always known there was more out there. There was more out there than, than what I'd been given as a child. And I wasn't going to settle. I just wasn't going to settle for that. I saw how miserable it made my mother. I saw how you know, how difficult it made other people's lives. And I just wanted more, you know, so I was prepared to do the hard work and whatever it took, as long as it meant that I could continue doing something I'd found that I actually loved doing, you know, so sacrifice, you know, hard work, long hours, you know, I've never been scared of that. So to me, it was, you know, it was worth it. It all weighed out in the end, you know. There's one quote in the book that really stood out to me on on page 147 in the chapter London Calling where you say, I'd grown up without the help of others. This meant now when I really needed it, I was unable to ask. I didn't know how. I couldn't break the habit of coming in through the bathroom window even though the front door was wide open. The front door scared me. I constantly felt as the only girl out there that someone would realise and decide it was a mistake and shut me down. When was the point where you got self-belief and you knew that you were you absolutely belonged in the room? Uh, you know, I would say I always had that little bit of hesitation, you know, pretty much all the way through, but I, di- I did get better with it. But you know what it is? It's down to self-worth, isn't it? If you don't have a lot of self-esteem, it's hard to be confident in yourself that you're doing the right thing and you're doing it better than other people. So I, I just went the other way and just demanded of myself that I, that I did do that because if I was that if I was better than other people then how could they say no mm. you know so I just worked harder and longer and and smarter to make it happen that way you know and and it wasn't long before I was in charge of crews and anything from you know a half dozen to you know a hundred people you know following my direction so you know and then it changes a little bit but you always remember you know be a be a courteous boss you know be a be a kind leader lead by example you know don't demand things of people that you're not prepared to do yourself you know so you know i always had that that little cringe going but you know i got better at not showing it i guess you know <laughs> and i did occasionally eventually come in the front door <laughs> i'm glad to hear it you've led a path for so many women um in the industry There are so many more women I see on stages as managers, as sound engineers, as lighting rig people all across the shop. And that is testament to the massive glass ceiling that you broke through. Loud is also chock full of some amazing stories that have got kind of nothing to do with the bands that you work with. You have all these 
incredible fortuitous meetings like just hanging out with Princess Diana at Windsor Castle for Prince Andrew's 21st, uh, William S. Burroughs, who you bump into at a pub near a gig that you're supposed to be at and you don't even realise who he is. That's something for the ages. Um, George Harrison at a house party and an amazing story about David Bowie in Iggy Pop's dressing room. In in all of these stories, though, what strikes me again is that you just you totally interact with all of these people on a very human level, you know? You're not a star effer, basically. Like, you find something human in them for better or worse. Um, do you think that that's how you've approached everyone throughout your whole life? Absolutely, absolutely. It's really important to me. I mean, it, it's kind of weird because at this stage of the game, you know, people go, oh, my God, so you must have tons of, like, autographs and, and all that sort of stuff and photos. And, and it's like, well, no, because I never really – I was never a fan, you know. It's, I, I felt – I think because I was a female, I felt really nervous about, you know, oh, can I get your autograph or, you know, here, let's take all these photos and stuff like that. You know, I didn't want it to be misconstrued that, you know, because there is a line you don't want to cross. So, you know, what I would do is I would go for the conversation side, see what we have in common and what can we talk about and, and, and you know, what, what are things that interest you that interest me. And, and it's also nice as well to not talk music 100% of the time. Mm. You know, you can do with a little break sometimes on a day off, you know, like like there was a very famous drummer, Ginger Baker, who was um, in the band Cream with Eric Clapton and various other, you know, bands. Thinking about the times you and he was notoriously a difficult person. I mean, people were like, oh, God, he's just terrible. And Ginger and I got on like a house on fire. <laughs> and I think the reason was, I mean, really, I mean, he's, he's smi- he'd smile, his face would light up. He'd be like, hey, you know, give each other a hug. We'd sit down and, and you know, we'd, we'd constantly meet up in this club in London called The Speakeasy, you know, and we'd just sit in the corner and we'd be just talking for hours, you know, and people would be like, oh, my God. How does she do that? Because <laughs> he was notoriously a gruff person, you know. And, you know, I think the secret was we never once spoke about music and I never once saw him play. You know, I never once went to a show. What we spoke about was horses. We both loved horses. <laughs> and so we talked about horses for hours and travel and different countries. And, you know, he had this scam where he was taking polo ponies into Africa. And I mean, bizarre <laughs> stuff, you know. So, yeah, seriously. And so, you know, <laughs> so we do that. And so that's that's my way that, that I would interact with, with these celebrities, you know, just treat them like human beings, you know. I feel Find like- out what they're interested in. And, and go that way. Look, this book is full of some amazing stories, but I have every confidence that you could write three more with a whole bunch of stories that you've heard. <laughs> um, some of them that you probably legally can't print. Loud is exactly. a brilliant read. It seriously is just captivated me from page one till the, the final word. It is A Life in Rock and Roll by the world's first female roadie. Your final choice, Tana, in your songs from the road is from Social Distortion. Very fittingly, it's the story of my life. What do you want to say about this song before I press play? All these songs, like I say, are on a playlist that comes with the book. So, and I just figured it's on Spotify. So it's a Spotify playlist called Loud. And I figured, you know, after taking five with you, you've pretty much heard the story of my life. So I thought that that was pretty apt.
Social Distortion with a perfect song to finish Tana Douglas's Take 5, Story of My Life. And what an amazing life. Seriously, her book has even more incredible stories. We barely scratched the surface and it is a rollicking read. Next time, another guest who's lived an extraordinary life. Kate Mulvaney is an award-winning playwright, screenwriter and actor. Her adaptation of Australian classic novels has positioned her as a trailblazer on the stage and she's someone who continually pushes boundaries and redefines the roles for women in contemporary Australian theatre. Her own life has been full of challenges and triumphs. And next time, Kate Mulvaney will take five with her backstory. Take five! The Take Five with Dan Rowe. Every week, hear the people you love. Hi, I'm Joan Jett. Hey, this is Nana Cherry. And I'm taking five. Talk about the five songs they love. Hear stories of discovery. And I heard this thing coming out of the speakers. I was like, oh my God, what is that noise? Wow. And the songs that changed how they saw the world. It just affected me deeply. I never knew rap could be that powerful. It's like a jungle. Join Zan Rowe and Take 5. Life 101 with Kimber and Zan. Pull up a chair. <laughs> Subscribe now.